We're going to continue on through the gospel of Mark on Sunday night. So if you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. So we know that everybody loves parades, right? We just came out of the holiday season, right? Thanksgiving, we had the Macy Parade. Well, kind of had the Macy Parade. And then we had the, the Rose Bowl Parade, which is kind of kind of had the Rose Bowl Parade. But normally we, we, we love these parades, right? And every year there's these parades and they're, and they're there to, to celebrate, right, uh, events and causes and, and ceremonies. So that, that's a big thing, right? And most of those who participate in parades, they, they want to bring out their best. So you always get the best marching bands and the best street performers. And, and, but especially like the road parade, you get the floats. Like these floats, like they decorate them and they, they trick them out and they try to win prizes with, with the floats. But what we don't see on the floats is that many of them are just made with bailing wire and fixtures and, and hard shells that they're framed. And then in these in these floats, there what? There's drivers underneath it, right? But from the inside, it looks all jacked up. But from the outside, it's beautiful, right? It's made out of raw materials, but it's beautiful on the outside. But the inside, it's it's all jacked. Sometimes, sometimes pride can be like that. Sometimes pride parades itself, right? One's appearance is not all that is true. It kind of can be nice on the outside, but but jacked up on the inside. Right, and, and, and sometimes we see that about floats. And that's exactly kind of what the message is going to be tonight as we just look at the disciples, right? Jesus was going to ruin the disciples' parade right now when we get into the story. He's going to reveal the raw motives and, and darkness of their hearts, and he's going to reveal their own sins as they're talking about who the greatest is in the kingdom. As they talk about promoting themselves, as they talk about all these different things, he's going to, he's going to ruin the parade. And he doesn't want them, the reason he's doing that is he doesn't want them to be the stumbling block to the people. He doesn't want them to be like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he's going to give a warning to correction to these leaders that he's been training and mentoring and pouring himself into for the last few years. Well, we're in chapter 9 and the latter part, we're finishing up chapter 9. But let me do a little recap for those that have been journeying with us through the gospel of Mark, specifically chapter 9. We know it starts, it starts with the type of an unusual day up in a mountain with Peter, James, and John, right? Remember, we, we talked about the transfiguration. Elijah and Moses appear on a mountain, right? They're blown away. Peter doesn't know what to do. It's like, do we build these huts? Do we do, we do a thing? Pastor Brent, great, great, great message that, that Sunday night on that, right? And so we see the glorified Jesus. We Jesus in his heavenly state. Jesus in the place where, like, man, is that what the heavenly body is going to look like? And he says, basically, man, they got to see Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the three amigos. But what happens is they come down from that mountain. They're blown away, and God says, don't tell nobody. And they come down the mountain, and they meet the rest of the disciples and a father and a demon-possessed son. And basically, they cannot cast out the demon-possessed son. And, and they're trying to, but they can't. And so this, this man comes, and, and he's coming to Jesus, and he's asking, can you heal my son? And, and basically, Jesus says, you know, this can only come out by what? Prayer and fasting. Why are we gonna why are we gonna go to a Daniel fast? This season we'd start the new year with a, a Daniel fast because we want to seek the Lord on behalf, not only on our own walk with God and our personal walk with God, but we know that there are some things that can only be broken by prayer and fasting. There are some things that can only change by the power of God. We can have all the technology, we can have all the skill in our memory and, and giftedness, but only God can break certain things as we submit our lives to the things of God. Because we what? We, we battle in the spiritual world. 
in light of all that's gone on in our nation, specifically this week and everything that's crazy about it, what's going to change it? We got to go before God. His people got to go before God and call on his name and let God do the healing in his, in his land. So they come down and they can't heal it. And, and then, you know, he's challenging with the man. And he asked, man, do you believe? He goes, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we know that God heals this, this young boy. And then what do we find? Then they, they start, they're here, they're in, in, in Caesarea Philippi, and then they're journeying through this whole thing, and they start going south. And, and on the journey, these guys are, what, they're, they're, they're having conversations, right? And they're, they're talking, and Jesus reveals something to them because Jesus was always discipling as he went. He's always building his relationship with disciples, and he talked about his death, burial, and resurrection. And they were like blown away by that because it says they didn't understand that, and they were afraid. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus begins to reveal about his plan and, and what he was going to do and, and how he was going to uh, bring it out. And as they continue on the journey, they come to Capernaum and they enter a house. And this is where the story begins as we get into verse 33 to the end of the chapter because he's going to put an end to the parade here, this parade charade with the disciples, I call it. He's going to put an end to that because God has always wants the best for us. He's always looking out for us. And he's pouring into the disciples. And so before we begin, let's pray. And Father in heaven, I just pray right now as we look at your word tonight, Father, that you would speak to us. You would speak to us through your word as we look at your written word. And Lord, I ask tonight, Lord, you would teach us what it means to be a servant. What is it that you desire in your own economy of faith? Father, we pray tonight that we would learn of you and that we would grow in you. And that, Father, we draw near to you and that, Father, you would strengthen us in this walk, in the midst of all that we're going through. How do we live out our faith in this season, in this time, in 2021? Lord, we could look to the past, but the past is gone. we got to look to the future. And that future is going to be led by your spirit. But, Father, may you equip us to live in this next year in a way that we can live in victory and with authority and with power. But, Father, you've called us to be servants because you said the greatest in the kingdom is a servant. Father, that is, that is what you look upon your people. And so I pray tonight your leading of your hand as we look at your word. May you be glorified in the reading and the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In Mark chapter 9, starting at basically 33, we're going to look at the first thing here, 33 to 37, that the disciples disputed over greatness. They disputed over greatness. You ever hear like on TV, you have those sports commentaries or commentary guys that come and they talk on TV and they tell what they think about things or newscasters will bring the news and, and they do all that and you're watching it on TV, but you hear about one of those one moments where the newscaster or the sportscaster doesn't realize that he still has his mic on and he makes comments and everybody hears it, but he didn't, wasn't meant for everybody to hear that. We, we've heard about a couple of those situations over time and, and how some of them even say things that they get fired for, right? It's like they don't realize that as they're doing this, that they're, they're revealing who they are. They're revealing what's going on and they're getting kind of caught in that. And, and people are like hearing, oh, what's, what's happening? Well, you got to see what's happening in the story. As the disciples are traveling with Jesus, they're having a conversation about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And they're puffing this out, but they do not realize that Jesus is listening. He's, he's, he's dropping an ear. He's hearing what they're saying. You know, and sometimes they're so busy, caught up about who the greatest is and walking and, and zoning in on one another, the 12, as they're journeying together. But Jesus is listening. 
and he's watching. But he doesn't say anything to them until they get to their destination of a house. And then he's going to break it down. And I love that about that because what you see here in the story is Jesus never gets mad at the disciples. He's going to shepherd them. He's going to train them. He's going to teach them. He's going to care for them because that's what a shepherd does, right? Think about it for a moment. Think about you as parents. And your parents, your kids go out and they act out a little bit and they go do crazy stuff and they do things. But you as parents, we can't lose our cool as parents because it's easy to do that. But our job as parents is to shepherd our kids. Even when they're talking crazy stuff, like I got four kids and sometimes they talk about crazy stuff that make no sense whatsoever. Like your thinking is not even logical, okay? Like I have those conversations, you know? And, uh, and, and I'm like, where did you get that from? But us as parents are called to guide them and direct them and shepherd them and teach them and, and hope one day, you know, I always find it crazy. Like I tell my kids something when I'm teaching them and directing them about something and I'd share with them over and over and over again. And when I remember when my kids went with Brett to youth, youth ministries and they went to camps and they come back, oh man, I just learned this. Brent said this or the pastor said this. I, I go, I've been telling you that for 20 years. You know what I mean? And, and, and so the reality is we're still here. Jesus is still going to shepherd uh, his disciples here. And so Jesus brings him in the house after they've been having this whole issue in verses 33 and 34, and he asks a direct question. Here it is. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what, do, what, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent for on the road. They had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. I love this. He brings him to the house. He like he has him captive. You know what I mean? Like, where are you going to go? You know what I mean? I got you here, right? He was in the house, and he's just, he's very direct, right? I, I think that Jesus must have realized that when they're having this conversation, it must have been a lively conversation among the disciples. So the disciples had different personalities, you know? You think of the Enneagram, you know? I don't know what these disciples on the Enneagram for those Enneagram people, you know what I mean? Like, oh, some are more out loud, some are more... He, more, you know, more, you know, more personal, um, more introvert, some are more outrovert. But Luke chapter 9, verse in telling the story, described it as a dispute that arose among them. So that tells me they probably got loud. You ever had that person, I'm like this, when I want to make a point, I raise my voice. Like, you want to make a point with me? I'm going to get louder. Because I want to make my point. I can imagine the disciples are talking, oh man, listen, you're crazy. I'm, I was there with Jesus up in the mountain. You're not going to say anything, but I was there with Jesus up in the mountain. And, and they're, I'm the greatest. You didn't get to go up the mountain, but I did. You know what I mean? And you can hear them. They're trying to talk over each other about getting their points across. I can, I can imagine that's how it's being played out here. But Jesus already, he already knew what was going on, right? He asked this question because he wanted to see what the disciples would say. Why? Because in the gospel, Luke chapter 9, it says he already perceived their thoughts. He already knew what they're thinking. He already knew what was in their hearts. God already knows the heart of man. He already knows that. You know, when, when, when he was healing the man on the pallet in Mark chapter 2, we, we studied his story. It says he perceived the heart of the religious leaders. He knew their heart. He knew what was going on. He knew the heart of the disciples. We know that Psalm 139, what's work, says that God knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. We can't hide those things within from God or the things from God. Or God already knows. And so he already, he's asking a question that he already knows the answer. Really, he already knows the answers. But he still wants to hear what the disciples have to say. But when he asked this question, there was silence in the room. 
it was real quiet, like a pin drop quiet. Because it says they were, they were quiet, right? I think when Jesus asked the question, they're like, oh, snap. You heard what we were talking about. Like in some ways, even they probably even felt like, oh, man, we're in trouble. Right? Because I think even probably what happens, they can have a wrong perspective about God. Maybe even with God with us, we, God reveals something like, oh, we're in trouble. We're, we're, we're in trouble with the big daddy guy and the guy in the sky. You know what I mean? But understand that God, God Jesus comes to them, and he's going to shepherd them. He's going to care for them, right? They're quiet, right? He already knows kind of the hardness of their, of their hearts and the pride of, of these men, right? He, I find it very interesting that Jesus had just shared with them that he was going to die. I'm going to die, buried, and raised again. And what are they doing? They're jockeying for a position of leadership. Dude, he ain't even dead yet, and they want a position, right? Like, like you know, it's like the, the prodigal son that came to the dad and said, hey, I want your inheritance. Can you give me, dad, can you give me the inheritance before you even die now? Like, you know, we know that Peter, we know that James and John would come to Jesus and say, hey, man, can I see your right hand or your left hand, Jesus? You know what I mean? And Jesus says, hey, can you suffer the same suffering I'm going to go? Can you drink of the same cup that I'm going to drink of? So these guys sometimes just missed it. You know what I mean? Like they had no people skills in some sense because like Jesus is like, I, you know, you're being intimate. I mean, I'm going to die. And you're like, oh, can we have, can, what, what can I get out of the deal? You know what I mean? You kind of see that being played out. So I think when Jesus calls them to the, to the carpet, they, they got real quiet. They got real quiet, right? But then Jesus kind of answers his own questions when you see in 35 to 37, right? Because he lays out the qualification for the greatest. He says, let me tell you, if you really want to be great, let me tell you what that is, right? And so we see that in verse 35, the qualification of grace says, and he sat down, he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. Oh, I love this about Jesus. They're all in there. They're in the house. And what does he do? He sits down and takes a seat. He just chill. And he says, he called the 12. He called them together, right? That's what he says. My mind pictures this, that maybe you're a teacher here or, or maybe my, my daughter's a um, preschool teacher and she always tells me what she does. And what, like preschool kids, you bring them and you have the teacher and you, you bring the kids together and they all sit down around the table or they all sit on the floor, right? And they, they get a lesson, right? I think that's the picture I see of Jesus here. He's sitting here with his disciples, which the word disciple means student, Right? He calls them, he's with the 12 or with the, with the disciples, and he's sitting there and he's going to teach them some things. He's going to instruct them. But you know what? When Jesus sits down, that means that's a sign of teaching. He's a rabbi. He's going to sit down. See, I'm standing, you're sitting, but in that culture, you would be standing and I would be sitting in that Jewish culture. So Jesus is taking the role of a rabbi. He's taking the role of a teacher, and he's going to begin to instruct the disciples about what it really means to be great in the kingdom. He says there, he shares about kingdom principles with the students. He says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. Hmm. The shepherd is not mad that they want to be great. <laughs> it doesn't say that. The shepherd is mad that they want to be great, but he shares how they can become great. And I hope you could catch that. There's desire, the Bible says in Timothy, for those who want to go into ministries. It's a great desire if you desire to be a bishop or an hour. It's a, it's a good desire you want to have in the things of the Lord. Desires are, don't necessarily are evil or bad. And, you know, and so he's saying, hey, it's okay. Okay, you want to be great. Let me, let me tell you what it means to, to be great. 
We know that not everyone could be famous, but everyone could be great because those that are serving the kingdom of God are great. That's what he says here, right? That's what he says, for the greatest in the kingdom of God is a servant. So we all can be great as we serve God. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to rearrange their ministry priorities. He's trying to help them rethink what it means to be great. See, in God's economy, greatness is when you become the least. When you become the least, not the first, but the last. That is the servant of all. Everything that Jesus does is a paradox. It's opposite. You want life? You have to give up your life, right? That's, he says that all the time. He, he, everything, he went to the cross to give us life. You try, to, you try to keep your life, you will lose your life. Everything's a paradox with God. And he's saying here, but in our world, it's like we're supposed to promote and, and we're supposed to be, get the top and we're supposed to be number one and we're supposed to brand ourselves and we're supposed to you know, you know, do all those different things in our world to promote ourselves. That, that's the economy of this world. But that's not the economy in God's world. It's not. Jesus said this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We'll read that in chapter 10. He came to be a servant. He came to give his life up for us. He was the model. He was the example. He'll share that with the disciples. Actually, the word there to be a servant, we, for those who have been in church, you know it's the word of diakonos, which means a deacon or a waiter, one who serves food, a drink. In God's value system, those are the greatest in the kingdom. So when you go out to eat, or when we used to go out to eat, right, you had the waiters there, and we treat them so bad, but in God's economy, that's the example that we're called to do. The waiter and the waitress has to put up with so much garbage of the people that come in because they're called to serve themselves, to stay there for person to serve the people, no matter what they want. The, the, the customer is always right. The customer, they're there for the customer. And Jesus is saying, we have the same heart as a waiter. We have the same heart as a servant to care for those that might just be a little knuckleheads. You know what I mean? That might just be a little hard to serve. You know what I mean? I remember um, when we did the, uh, the toy drive, Sean, we were doing the toy drive and the people coming down and they're coming through here with the one lemon grove and they're all like, and like the kids were like, saw all the toys and the parents saw like, you know, like, hey, where's the Xbox? The Xbox? What's, what is this? I, I, to, Toys R Us is closed now. What do you think? I'm Toys R Us? What do you, what, you know what I mean? And then they, and then like, well, can I go to the next station to see something? It was like, they, they just wanted more and more and more. You know, I'm like, you know, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to serve them. You're trying to have a right attitude. I'm like, you know, okay, pick a toy, kid. I'm going to pick a toy for you. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you're trying to serve them. You're trying to wait on them. And sometimes people are not appreciative of those types of things. But Jesus oftentimes came to serve, and people didn't appreciate that. They didn't appreciate that. And yet he's saying, listen, if you want to be my follower, you want to be great, then you got to take on the life of a servant, a life of a deacon, a life of hospitality, a life of a, a waiter, one who serves food and drinks. And we see here in 36 to 7 that faith is what we need to make that happen. Look at this. Then he took the little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
So he's sitting in a house, he's teaching, and then what is he doing? He goes, I'm going to give you a little visual aid. Come here, Miha. Come here, Miha. Come here. I'm, I'm going to see this little one. You're going to be like this little kid. You're going to be like this little one. I love Matthew's interpretation because Matthew chapter 18, who tells the same story, verses 2 to 5, gives deeper understanding to what's going on. I wanted to read it to you because it'll give you more insight. Because many of the stories you read are in the other gospels and they give you more information. So if you guys are student of the words, get the harmony of the gospel book. You'll, it'll help you with understanding these things. But it says this, then Jesus called the little child to him and he set him in the midst of them, right in their presence. And said, surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one of the little ones, whoever receives one, one little child like this in my name receives me. Look, you want to you wanna be a servant? It starts with being childlike. <laughs> Got to have childlike faith, right? Children trust anything, right? You know, when kids are out there, and I, I, I see one of the kids, the family, you're, you're, you're running around, Josiah running out there, right? If you, he, 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 he could be standing on a wall and you say, jump, he'll just jump. You're like, he don't think about nothing. He just says, okay, I'm going to jump because they're so trusting. They're, they'll, they'll trust anything. They're vulnerable. They're, they're innocent. They haven't been tainted by this world when they're young. You know, after a while, you say, I don't, I don't trust you no more. You know what I mean? My kid's like, yeah. When you're a kid, you jump my arms. Now you're like, eh, give you the high five. You know, the, the Heisman. You know, it's okay, dad. You know what I mean? I'm not cool anymore. You know what I mean? But right now, the kids, you said, but you got to face it. It's simple faith. Serving is simple. It's like simple faith. He even goes into the fact that he says this, this simple faith is, is really what's going to get you into heaven. We like to complicate things too much. Right. We try to make it, well, well, you know, am I reformed theology or am I ministry theology? Am I? We, we get into all this theology, but that ain't going to save you. <laughs> it, what saves you is this childlike faith, childlike serving. Right? That's, that's what saves you, right? Your position really in heaven is based on your childlike faith. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 says this, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his, in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories, glories in this, that he understands and knows me. The intimacy of God, knowing God, childlike faith, childlike humility. You need to become like a child, because what? Children are powerless. They are. They're powerless, right? Hmm. It, it, in fact, I know you're running around with Josiah. That's okay. But you know what, what you're doing here? You're, you're serving him. He could care less about your serving him. There's no payment for your serving and chasing him. There isn't, right? That, that, think about that. You're serving your kid who care less about what you're serving. And that's the childlike thing he's saying here. You got to have faith in the child because you're going to serve people that are not going to reciprocate it back on you. In fact, a lot of it is like a form of even entitlement. Like you're supposed to give it to me. You know, people have that with the church. Well, the church is supposed to give me stuff. No, the church isn't supposed to give you stuff. We're not a social service agency. That's not what we are. We're here to, about the gospel, about transformation. But he's saying that your service is like a child who what? That you're going to serve people without any idea that you're going to get served back or been given anything back. In fact, I even challenge you guys that 
Some of you might even just serve in the shadows. You're serving and God knows you. Think about the people in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, or we know that there's a list of all the, the you know, we have you know, all the listing of Abraham and all these great giants. But when you go later down into the chapter, it talks about saints that don't have any names, but God knows their name. They were the servants of the shadow that gave up their lives by faith. Some of you, you've been faithful servants for the kingdom and maybe the church leader doesn't know that. Maybe some of the people in the church don't even know that, but God knows that he's mindful of your service. And when you're serving in the shadows, without in a pat on the back, or without a, 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 you know, a, a, a little piece of paper of, of thank you or none of that. You're just serving faithfully. That's all you're doing. But look at man may not see you, but God sees you. God sees your faithfulness. God sees your heart. He sees your service here. And so he's confronting the disciples about these things, about being the greatest in the kingdom. But then you would think that they would absorb that in. Okay, the greatest is serving. And then they come the next verses, you see they're gonna discriminate. Like, hey, you're not part of our like elite team, right? You're like, you're not part of the 12. So you're not accepted. Look at verses 38 to 41, the disciples discriminate against others, right? You know, we have to be careful to think that we're just the only church here, right? God has a church universal. God, God has a beautiful bride all over the world and they're doing great things for the kingdom. Don't think that New Vision is the only thing doing anything and that we're like, oh, you can't be like New Vision because there are churches that say, no, we're the only church. Can I only go through us? Nah, God's, God's bride is bigger than just this. It's bigger than just this. But when you look at what's going on with the disciples here, right, John brings up some opposition to the kingdom ministry. So they're talking about the greatest, and then what? They're still learning. They're still learning. So you still got to teach them, right? Look at 38. Now, when John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him because he does not follow us. Now, this opens up to a different conversation, right? They're still in the house. Right. Now they're getting, okay, let's break down the word. Let's, they're getting Bible study going on. They're, Jesus is going to teach here. And it's like, well, this happened the other day. Like these people are, are casting out demons and, and they said, when we saw them, we were forbid them. We said, no, you, you can't do that because you're not a part of our team. You're not a part of our church. You're not a part of the 12. You're not a part of the fold. You, you see this being playing out. I find it very interesting that they said no to him after they couldn't cast out a demon just earlier. <laughs> right? Like, like Jesus has to come down and do your work, but you can cast, but you're telling somebody don't do this. Like how self-righteous is that? Right? But we as a church, be careful that we don't do that as, as, as God's people, right? And he's, he's laying out, John is asking, this is the only place in the scripture that John ever asked a question, that John ever asked a question. Some believe that John probably was the youngest of all the disciples, right? You always find him listed second under James and John because in the line of things, he'd probably been that but they were already segregating the body. We call that sectarianism, means separation. They're not a part of the elite team. Yeah. You're, I'm varsity, you're JV. You know what I mean? That's kind of the, the, the attitude that's being played here, right? I wonder why Jesus never baptized anybody. Have you ever thought about that? Because if he did, they're like, oh, I got baptized by Jesus. Oh, you might have got baptized by Paul, but I got baptized by Jesus. Well, they, people would be boasting that. 
would be boasting those, those very things. I think that's why Jesus never baptized people. Guys, we have to be, you know, we have to be mindful that God's kingdom and the work that God's doing is large. But you know what the church does sometimes? We can be very territorial. Territorial with our churches, territorial with our ministries. You know, like we're like the dog that goes through the fire hydrant, leaves his mark. Oh, you can't come over here. You know what I mean? We don't have a, we have to be careful we don't lose that kingdom mentality. We're not, New Vision's not trying to build New Vision kingdom. We're trying to build God's kingdom. And we know that there's players out there that we work with. We know that there's people out there that we can join in kingdom work together, that we're not alone in this. We're not isolated in this. That we do this together. And in doing it together, we share in the blessings together because there, there are rewards. Because why? We need the church. We need one another because in the church, it's like the body, right? It, it, it's diverse and, and, and it brings blessing. It brings different types of gifts. That's why we need each other. You know, I have, I have friends across denominational lines that I serve with and we do ministry with and we want to partner with because we can't do it alone. We need the body universal. We need to be all in it, right? But they were hindering that thinking. They were hindering the gospel, right? Uh, you, can't, you can't cast out that. You can't do that, right? In fact, the word here says he forbade. That word forbade in the Greek means to withstood or hindered. Withstood or hindered. I don't want to be hindering anything that God wants to do. I don't want to be the cog in the, in the work of God. I don't want to be the one who says, no, we can't do it because we've never done it that way, or no, you're not part of this neighborhood. Oh, you're not part of this community. Don't come in my neighborhood. I never, ever want to be like that. I'm trusting God he's working it out through his people, what he's doing. But they were verbally coming with the words, saying, no, you can't do this. And John's asking this question. But I think Jesus affirms the kingdom ministry here. We look at verses 39 to 41. He says this, but Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, so surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In some way, he's reprimanding the, the disciples, right? Don't be opposed to God's work. Don't stop it. Do not forbid these things, right? Don't divide people. Don't divide the ministry. We're one. Do not, be, do not forbid for no one who works the miracles of my name can afterwards speak evil of me. They're coming in my name. They're casting out in my name. He's reminding them of the kingdom work, right? He, he kept it really simple in the sense of here's the kingdom work. How about we just give a, a cup of cold water <laughs> to the thirsty? You know, what, what if we just give out a handout to some foods? I, somebody, a friend of mine, years ago said, man, I really want to start a homeless ministry, a, a feeding ministry to the homeless. Really? Okay, go to your cupboard. What, do you see any food? He goes, yeah, make food. Okay, let's go out the street, give food away. You should start a homeless feeding program. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be what we do. Thirsty, simple, give them water. I was, I don't think I might have shared this um, with you, I don't remember, but I remember I was with my dad a couple of months ago. We were out getting something for my son. 
And my dad's 78 years old. He just came to know the Lord. And we were walking down the street and we were downtown. We were downtown LA walking down the street and my dad is batting a little dementia. So I got a little scared because he, we were with him. And I started walking. My son was with me. Ryan was with me walking. My dad was right here. And all of a sudden we were walking. Then I turned around. My dad was gone. Like, oh, snap. Where did my dad go? You know what I mean? You ever lose your kid? I lost my dad. You okay? <laughs> and so, and I, I'm walking down. I'm like, oh, and I turn around. And my dad, I was walking this way, and we had just crossed this silver sweater, and he gave it to the homeless man. And it just touched me. It was just, it was just simple as that. He goes, I think he just needed this more than I did. That, that was just his thinking. See, see, it's, that's, that's giving a cup of cold water. That, that's the simple things that we can do in ministry. Gosh, we need to see that more today than ever before. In a world that we've just seen so much hate and, and division and anger and bitterness, how about we just give some cold water how about we just pay, for, pay it forward with somebody? How about, how about we just keep it very, very simple? And he reminds them, when you do this, there's a reward. There's a reward. Look up, look up the word reward. You'll see in scriptures all the different types of reward. Reward for those who are persecuted. Reward for those who serve. Reward for those who serve in the ministries. God talks about these rewards. We get rewards in heaven. But we don't live because God's going to give us these rewards. We, we, we might get jewels. We may get crowns in our, you know, jewels in our crowns. But this is what we're going to do with those rewards. But by, when we get into the presence of God, we're going to take those rewards and put them at the feet of Jesus. Because everything in the kingdom is going to be beautiful. There won't be any need in the kingdom of God. There won't be any of that in there. We're going to take those rewards and just give them back to the one who deserves the rewards who served us. That's what we're going to do. That's what's going to happen. And so he's addressing these types of things. Keep it simple. Just give a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ, right? You belong to Christ. We're Christians. We're Christ followers. We just give ourselves away. That's what we do in this life. Wherever we may be, at our business, in our schools, with our kids, in the church, wherever we be in the moment, we serve with that capacity in the spirit. And then this is what he does to the disciples as we close in 42 to 50. He, he begins to direct about and deal with the issue of, of sin. And he lays out three ways not to stumble others. Look at, don't, don't block anybody. Don't be a stumbling block to the ministry. And don't be a stumbling block to people, right? I know you're talking about being the greatest. We already addressed that issue, all right? We know people are serving in my name and they're a part of my team. Don't forbid that. They're going to worship me. Let them do what they're doing. But let me tell you how we can, we can get in the way of, of ministry here, right? And we start seeing three ways to be a stumbling block to others. Number one, we have to, first of all, we have to be sensitive that we don't have to be a stumbling block. 42, it says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if, he, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. He, he mentions here little ones. Right away, your mind goes, oh, I must be talking about little kids. Well, it's not necessarily little kids in age. It could be little kids in faith. Young people that maybe, people that have come to faith, that they're young in the faith. They're, they're not necessarily young in age, but they're young in understanding the things of God. Because there were religious leaders of the day that were stumbling the people. They were, they were causing stumbling blocks and putting hardships and doing all these different things here, right? In fact, he says here, whoever causes these little ones to believe in me to stumble, stumble means to sin or cause to fall. 
we have to be careful that we're not stumbling blocks for people to grow closer to Jesus. There are people who are different walks in life here, different maturity levels. Some of you are newer in the faith. Some of you are old in the faith, okay? And what I mean by that is some of you might be just started walking your faith. You're learning about things, God. Some of you might be in the faith like 30 years and you've learned a little bit more scriptures. But we can't take the things and start putting stumbling blocks for people to, to hinder them and start making people doing that and using our freedoms and justifying our freedoms and say, well, I'm free in Christ, but it's a stumbling block to those that maybe don't understand what we're doing. For example, if, if you're a vegetarian and you don't eat meat, you're a vegan, and you invite me over for dinner, I'm not going to ask that you throw me out of state because that's what I want, right? You're a vegetarian. I'm going to be a vegan for the night, right? That's what I'm going to do because I don't want you to be a stumbling block. I don't want to stumble you because this is what you are. This is what you believe. This is what you want. You invited me into your house, right? When, when Paul was doing the ministry, he said, when I came to the Jews, I was a Jew. When I came to the Gentile, I was a Gentile. He wasn't being a chameleon. He wasn't trying to be that. He says, I was each of these things that I might win some to Christ, that I might win some of those things to Christ. And, and, and so we have to be careful. We're not a stumbling block to people in, in our lives, that we're not causing them to stumble over the things of God. In fact, Romans 14, 21 says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Like, don't, don't use your rights to, to affect other people. And you could harm other people, right? Corinthians 10, 32, 3 says, don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or to the church of God. That is the plan I follow to. I try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what I like or what is best for me, but what's best for them so they may be saved. I try to live my life so I can draw people to, to Christ and whatever that happens, however I need to be in that moment, I'm trying to draw them closer to Jesus. That's not about living for me. People ask me the question about drinking. And people, some people drink wine and some people have a beard. I'm, that's between you and the Lord. I don't drink. I, don't, I see what drinking's done to people. I've seen the cause of alcoholism. I've seen the cause of DUIs. I've seen the cause of accidents. Right, I growing up, I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I drank and I used and did a lot of those different things. But the reason I don't drink, number one, is not because I don't have a right to drink, but I don't drink because I don't want to be a stumbling block to those in the church who struggle with drinking, who struggle with addictions, who struggle with those things. I don't do those things because I never want them to see. Oh, I saw Pastor Peter restaurant; he's throwing down some wine, and you're not going to catch me on the corner with a forty with brown bag in it either. Okay, all right? Because I want to be the example. I want to be able to be a testimony to the people. Though I, I, I won't go to hell if I have a beer or a wine cooler. That, that, I'm, I'm not gonna, it's not gonna be bad. But that's my personal convictions of how I see things as a leader. That I wanna bear a good testimony to the family and to the body. That I could bear a good testimony of that, right? Because a lot of things might be legal, but not everything's beneficial. You know, I, I, what am I going to benefit by that? Though I have a right, that doesn't mean I can, I can gain by that. Jesus always gives us warning how we're to look out for the interest of others because there's a great cost if you stumble those. He talks about a millstone here. 
If you stumble these little ones, you might as well put a millstone on and throw you into the sea or throw you into the, the river. A millstone wasn't a little rock. A millstone is what they used to grind a, a ground wheat, and, and it's, it was a thing that they moved. You think about a millstone as that big rock with a horse that pulls a big rock and moves in a circle. That thing's huge. It's heavy. Jesus is saying, you want to stumble? This is how serious. You want to, you want to stumble? Let me tell you. You're going to take that big old rock, put it around your neck and throw you over. He was talking about the seriousness of that in that word picture. So we have to be sensitive to the people around us that we're, we're not being a stumbling block to them. I think in some of the issues that relates to sin or those types of things, we have to even be radical with it. Look at verses 30, uh, 43 to 47, right? That we don't take sin lightly. It says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If it is better for you to enter into the life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never quench, where the worm dies, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if, you, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet, to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dies, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He repeats this over and over again. And if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes, but to cast into the fire for where the worm does not die, die and the fire is not quenched. He repeats himself on three things. He, he, he lists three body parts here, right? The hand, the foot, and the eye. He just repeats himself. He, he's, he's giving an illustration. Jesus is not condoning self-mutilation here. I don't want you to go and start cutting yourself when you get home, all right? If you have a problem with stealing, don't cut your arm off. Don't cut your finger off. He's not saying that. You're struggling with some lust. and you're, Don't pluck your... He's not doing that. Come on, guys. That's not what it's saying. He's saying that when you're dealing with the issues of temptation or sin or struggle, there are some radical steps that need to happen in your life to overcome. Take those radical steps. Take those things that are to help you overcome. Many of you are reminded of that story of the hiker who fell in the crevice and got his arm ledged in the rock and it was there overnight and, and he couldn't free himself. Right, he couldn't. He was he was there, and he had to make a decision because him being there cut the circulation off that killed the limb. And he had to make a decision: stay there and die, or take his pocket knife, cut through his arm, and break free. You know what he had to do? It was a pocket knife. It wasn't even a knife. And he cut through his arm, but he when he got to the bone, the knife wasn't sharp enough. And what he did was he had his arm. And he snapped the bone. And when he snapped the bone, he cut through his flesh, put a bandage on, climbed out of the hole, and got free. He had to cut his arm, his limb, in order to break free, in order to live. He had to make a choice. Guys, there are some things in our lives that have to be radical choices that we're going to have to cut out of our life. It might be relationships that don't draw us close to God. It might be things we're watching that we cannot watch. We have to cut it out of our lives. And we have to take radical steps to cut those things out of our life in order to have life. Because if we don't, it will kill us. It's a choice that's a matter of life and death in our marriages, in our relationships, whatever we may do. And the point that Jesus is making here is says, what are some radical steps that you're going to have to take in your life that protects you from things? Because the hand could steal things. Five-finger discount, right? Really tempting. 
You're at the, the foot. The foot. The foot can lead us to places we shouldn't be going. The eyes can, which is the windows to our soul. We talked about the lust of the eyes this morning at church and morning service. What are we putting in our eyes? What are we seeing? Job's, what did Job say? Lord, I won't put anything in my eyes. I hide those things from my eyes. I want to put anything that's not pleasing to you, God, with my eyes. There are things that we might need to remove that's cancerous in our life that we need to cut it out to spiritually, surgically remove it. I think that's the point that Jesus is making here. That some of the things we're battling it has to be radical decisions here. But I think also, if we don't, there, he, he gives a warning in each of these things here. That's very scary. If you, if you look, he says, he says that there where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched, right? He, he, he mentions that three times. He even goes, it says, to cast into hell, into fire that shall never quench, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He mentions that three times. Jesus often would say, verily, verily. Why would Jesus always say that? Because he wanted to get our attention. Verily, verily, and he would say something. If Jesus is repeating this three times, it's, I think we need to pay heed to this. If he's repeating it three times, he's saying, I don't want you to miss this, man. You know, here's a sticky note for you. Put it on your, put it on your computer. Put it on your dashboard. Let, let, me, let me show you what's going on. Because it's crazy here. What he's saying is that there is a place separate from God called hell that's where the worm never dies. It's a real place because Jesus mentions it. It's not a make-believe place. Some people believe when you die, you're just annihilated, you just die. But no, 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 no. This is a very, very real place where the worm doesn't die. It's a, it's a continual torment. It's for eternity. And Jesus speaks about that. We only have to listen to the story of Lazarus, Lazarus not the one who raised him in the bed, but the, the, the homeless guy that was cast to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man that was cast into hell and how the rich man, what did he say? Oh, can I go back and tell my brothers about this place? Can you just put a little dab of water on my tongue? He goes, even he, the, the Lord said, even if a man was to raise for the dead, they still wouldn't believe. <laughs> how many today we, we tell people about Jesus and they still don't believe? You see, God, God doesn't send people to hell because he's, that's what he wants. He's done everything to keep people out of hell. He's been gracious enough to keep people out of hell. He's given warnings to keep us out of hell. We only hell because they choose not to go to heaven. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And we see that here in the story. So we believe it's a, it's a real place. There was a place in that community, in that culture, the word hell means Gehenna, a place of Hannah. It was a, it was a garbage dump in the city of Jerusalem, a place where they would often burn the dead and throw their garbage, and that place would smoke and it would smell. It was a picture of hell. Jesus would often refer to that. But it's a very real place. It's a very place of intense suffering that never ends. We don't like to talk about hell. We like to talk a lot about heaven, but we won't talk about hell. But it's a real place. It's a place for the wicked. And so, you know, we want, to, we want to be radical. But lastly, guys, as we close, we want it to be peaceable. We want it to be peaceable. Look at 49.50. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but the salt loses its flavor 
How will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. A couple thoughts about salt. Salt is kind of a picture for trials. It says here, everyone who will be seasoned with fire, people go through difficulties. They go through hardships. Last year was a hard year going into 21, and maybe it's not even, maybe even the same thing, that people went through some difficult times, some trials. When they offered up sacrifices, they often used to put salt on the sacrifice before they offered it, especially in the Old Testament. Didn't Jesus call us to be a living sacrifice? We were called to be a living sacrifice, to bear witness in the times of our troubles. That we're going to go through difficult times. We're going to go through hardships. Jesus went through some hard times too, right? He says that birds have nests, but foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He went through some hard times too. He had some difficulties. But we also know that salt is used for flavor, right? It's, salt is a, a preserver. It sustains food. Back in those days, they didn't have refrigerators, right? They would put salt on it and put it in areas in underground or places to keep it preserved to last a little longer, the, the food, right? But salt also brings flavor. I think salt is a conspiracy in our day, especially at the theaters, because when you buy a big popcorn, they put a lot of salt, Why? Right? because you just spent $10 for the popcorn, so you can buy $20 for a Coke, okay? And both of those things make you thirsty, right? It's a conspiracy. They're here to get our money, okay? But, but salt is what God says. You, it brings flavor to the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the world. We're to bring flavor. But be careful that we don't lose our saltiness. We need to bring flavor to this world. We need to, people that are thirsty or people that are hungry, we bring them a little taste of God. My wife right now, I know it's almost 6.30. She's making me a steak. She said, I'm going to make you a steak when you come home. You're going to season it, put steak salt, you know, all that on there. Let it marinate a little bit. It's, I'm going to taste the flavor of it. Guys, we bring flavor to this world. We bring flavor, the flavor of God to this world. We are the salt of this world. But we are also, by being the salt of this world, we are the peacemakers of this world. Guys, don't we need peace right now more than ever? We need peaceable people. We are the salt shakers that bring peace to those around us. We're not troublemakers or drama makers, but peacemakers. There's <laughs> a lot of people causing a lot of drama today. We saw that on the news this week. But that's not, that's not, the, that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is peace, peaceful and righteousness and joy of the Holy Spirit. That is the kingdom of God. That is the picture of the kingdom of God. That should be the picture of the church in these troubled times right now, that we bring stability to an unstable world. We are the salts of this. Because once the salt loses flavor, it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. So I close with these thoughts, guys, as we close, and Pastor Pope's going to come do communion tonight. A disciple of Jesus Christ is called to be a servant. A servant is the greatest in the kingdom of God. We just want to keep it simple, like a waiter, like a waitress, serving wherever God has put us, wherever God has placed us, wherever God has put us for the moment of the day. You pray, God, how can I be a servant today? 
How can I serve my husband? How can I serve my wife? How can I serve my children? How can I serve in my job? How can I serve my boss? How can I serve wherever? God, how can I be the servant? Because I know being the servant is the greatest in your kingdom. I think number two, a disciple of Jesus Christ is kingdom-minded. Is kingdom-minded. That we're building God's kingdom and that God's kingdom is bigger than just new vision. It's, you know, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer of the Lord's prayer, right? So when, we're, when we are the representatives of Christ, we are the ambassadors of Christ, where is the kingdom? Oh, somebody say, no, it's not up there. It's in here. The kingdom is within. So wherever I go, I bring the kingdom because the king is wherever the kingdom is and the kingdom king is in here. And so wherever I go, I represent the kingdom. And I'm doing kingdom building. And lastly, a disciple of Jesus Christ refuses to stumble others. He puts others before himself, first before himself. He's not a stumbling block. He's a peacemaker is what he is. He's helping others grow in their love for God and their love for one another to love God and to love people. That's what kingdom people do. That's what he's trying to teach the disciples as they've just had a Bible study in this house in Capernaum. He's just rapping with the disciples, talking about these are the kingdom principles by which you're called to live by. You want to follow me? This is the cost of following me. You want to be great? Serve, bless, build the kingdom, and don't be a stumbling block to nobody. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your love and your blessings and your goodness and mercy and grace. And we pray that you're honored by the teaching and the reading of your word, Lord. Pray that you will be glorified and that you will be magnified. Thank you for those here tonight, because you said in your scriptures that there's a blessing in the hearing of your word. And I pray that there's a blessing in those that are here tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us.